couple of months ago, I watched the movie Glory, the 1989 film starring Morgan Freeman and Denzel Washington, which depicts the first major battle by black soldiers in the Union Army during the Civil War. It had such a powerful impact on me because I realized that there's so much about this history that I just did not know, a history that most people do not know, and it's a history that bleeds into almost every facet of politics and society today. I just had to know more. So I hit up my good friend Eugene, who I know has a deep knowledge of this story, uh, and I asked him for book recommendations, and he suggested one by a historian named Noah Andre Trudeau. The book is titled Like Men of War, which is the most comprehensive history of black troops in the Civil War, pulling from letters newspaper articles, diaries, and much more. So I got the book, I couldn't put it down, and I haven't stopped thinking about it ever since. And I figured if it had such a big impact on me, it was something others would want to learn about too, especially people who listen to Empire Files. About 180,000 African Americans joined the Union Army between 1862 and 1865, made up of free blacks from the North fighting alongside former slaves who escaped only to put on a uniform and go right back to face their former masters in even combat. Some fought for retribution, some to rescue their families, all of them fought to liberate their people and end the vicious era of slavery, but as you'll learn today, they are fighting for something even bigger than that monumental task. Proclamation, Master, hush it as he will. The bird he sing it to us, hopping on the cotton hill. The possum up the gum tree, he couldn't keep it still as he went climbing on. Soldiers, just as soon as you are home. When the master hears us yelling, they will think it's Gabriel's horn as we go marching on. We have done with hoe and cotton, we have done with hoe and corn. So goes the marching song of the 1st Arkansas Negro Regiment. And as we'll learn in this episode, they wouldn't exactly be done with hoe and cotton and corn, but they would achieve the chorus of the song, which is glory. I'm here with Eugene Perrier, frequent guest on The Empire Files and a host at Breakthrough News. All right, Eugene, first of all, thank you so much for the book recommendation. It was uh, definitely occupied the better part of my life for the past couple of weeks in a very good way. <laughs> yeah, no, well, you're more than welcome. I mean, I, I really love this book. I honestly can't even remember how I found it, um, but it's definitely like on my my no lend list. Like I just <laughs> risk not getting it back. Uh, and I'm frequently, frequently using it for things. So no, I appreciate it. And I appreciate you taking the, the, the time to talk about it. Yeah. So Eugene, you studied this topic extensively in the history department of Howard University, a historically black college, which actually sits on land where the civil war was fought, but you've also been drawn to the story from a personal connection and are in possession of a family heirloom directly from the battlefield. 
Yeah, I do have a Colt 1861 Navy pistol used by a uh, Union cavalry soldier who was an ancestor of mine on my mother's side. And this gun had been handed down, you know, through the ages. And I ended up with it amongst everyone uh, uh, of his grandkids, my grandfather and uh, my mother's father. And it's, it's, you know, a big piece of history for a lot of reasons. I mean, just to have it first and foremost um, and have that visible connection to your past is powerful. You know, there's four notches in the handle, which means it was used. Four Confederates were killed with it. So, um, wow. you know, you know, you had an ancestor that was in some way, shape or form in the thick of it uh, in that that context. I need to do a fuller lineage of this. I've never really done a full mm -hmm. deep dive on it yet, but I need to. Um, but yeah, and I mean, so, you know, and I think it's powerful and relevant, I think. You know, you bring up the, you know, Howard as an institution, of course, being founded in Reconstruction, um, you know, in the context of, of, of the the world that was being fought for by, you know, the, the formerly freed slaves and other black people in the country. So, yeah, to, to have such a direct lineage to, to what was a powerful moment in time, you know, for black people in the United States of America is definitely, uh, you know, something I'm, I feel very lucky to, to have. Yeah, you know, and uh, if, if you're killing someone with the Colt pistol, that's not a long range weapon. So it means it's a, it's an up close and personal combat. And you are, you're from Virginia, right? I am. I'm from Charlottesville, Virginia, right. which, you know, Virginia, of course, the center of so many civil war, uh, engagements. Right. And, uh, Virginia was part of the Confederacy, uh, joined in 1861 and Richmond was actually the capital of the Confederate States. Indeed, Richmond was indeed the capital of the Confederate States. Of course, black troops helped lead the procession into Richmond when it fell in 1865. Uh, you know, there's a it's unconfirmed. I've, I've only been able to partially confirm this element uh, of the story. But the when Juneteenth was announced as a holiday in Texas, there were a number of black regiments that were there that had been helping to put down, um, you know, the remnants of the, the Confederate cause. And uh, allegedly, one of those regiments was the first black regiment to enter Richmond. I have not been able to fully confirm that, although I have confirmed that some others that were like there in Richmond were also there in Texas. I think that is confirmed. But anyway, it's an interesting piece of, of history of the United States colored troops that I think, uh, you know, would, would be worth people looking into more who are really interested in it. And I think the connection uh, of Juneteenth being announced when black soldiers were essentially mopping up the end of the Confederacy in a couple different points in Texas is also a powerful narrative. Right. And so before we get into this really epic story throughout the duration of the Civil War from mostly from 1862 to 1865. But before we do that, I want people to kind of understand some of the context to kind of better understand this epic story. I think first and foremost, we have to talk about combat in the Civil War. Can you talk about the technology and tactics of the time that made it so particularly brutal? I mean, the, the Civil War, there's a lot of battles in the Civil War where you had two to 3,000 dead on each side, on Union and Confederate side. These are extremely high casualty engagements. But what was it that made it so bloody? 
Yeah, I think, you know, that's a very good point. I think, uh, you know, over, over 600,000 people, of course, die. And, you know, a, a lot of it is exactly what I think a lot of people say when they look at movies and things like that in the Civil War. Like, why are they just all lined up shooting at each other? <laughs> right. um, and, uh, you know, and it obviously seems obvious from sort of our thought process of rifles, which are, you know, that they're relatively accurate. And so you definitely don't just want to be just standing out in the open. But there's a, always, of course, a famous phrase. I'm sure probably a lot of people who are listening to this have heard which is that, you know, at least when wars start, you're usually fighting the last war. And so those sorts of massed formations are a result of the fact that, you know, the early muskets were in fact not rifles, but smoothbores. So rifles like a little groove in the barrel. And it basically that's what like makes the bullet turn so that it can be accurate moving through the air. So before that, it was just like a smooth bore and you know the 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 musket ball that was in there. And so you couldn't really aim it that well and you had to be pretty close to hit anything. There were there were some rifles back then, but very, very few. Um so the way that, you know, quite frankly, you sort of had to fight was to match your fire. Uh, mm -hmm. And of course, the goal being to, you know, see who could inflict enough punishment that the other side would would break essentially and allow various maneuvers. There's more to it than that. But that's more or less, you know, why they're in those formations. But at the time of the Civil War, you had had the sort of, you know, the, the invention of the mini ball, which was sort of a bullet that was, you know, working more relevantly to the to the rifled barrel. So you'd had this huge technological advance in the guns that they were using. There, there are other factors that become important, um, especially, you know, the rise of the ironclads in the Navy. But the biggest thing really is the rise of the rifled barrel. But they had military tactics from a time where weapons had been less accurate and they hadn't really evolved. I mean, the Crimean War, which was, um, you know, not that long before, there was kind of the first war to be fought with rifles and was known for, for being super bloody too. Um, but yeah, so it created this whole thing. And then the other big fact is that medical science was still not very advanced at all. And so a very large percentage of people in the Civil War actually did not die of being shot. They died of getting disease after they'd been wounded. And, you know, most of the things that we know now about, you know, basic things about sanitation mm -hmm. were just totally unknown then. And so, you know, that's another major factor in the, the, the issue of the, you know, ultimately the death toll in the Civil War is the, you know, at that time, not terribly advanced state of, of medical knowledge. Right. And so this idea of like the there are muskets, not rifles. And so you're not using them by like hiding behind a tree and popping out and firing at someone who's, you know, three or 400 meters away. It's all about what they call volleys, where you are all together in a line and you all shoot at the same time at the right moment. So it's like, you know, 20 people shooting at once to have an effect to, to be able to kill people versus like, you know, individual combatants popping around the battlefield. Basically, standing in a big crowded formation with people being shot all around you, uh, trading volleys with another big crowded formation until one finally retreats. Lots of hand-to-hand -hand combat, too. I mean, you can only shoot a few rounds a minute. Uh, so the musket itself is a major weapon, almost like medieval combat, where you're bludgeoning people with the buttstock and stabbing people with the bayonet. And, you know, it was so blood. You mentioned the 600,000 or more um, Americans who died in the Civil War. The population was pretty small. So that was like two and a half percent of the population, which means more than one out of every 50 people living in the United States was killed in the war. And of course, there's all these other interesting, complicated things like you know, all of the logistics, like, you know, you couldn't just like drive a vehicle and drop off a bunch of soldiers or an airplane. So for military operations to happen, like if you want to go invade Virginia or whatever, you just literally have to march, 
you know, 30 miles a day, thousands of soldiers, supply routes connecting everywhere where people are camping and things like that. So it's definitely like extremely wild, elaborate types of fighting. And this whole thing about parade field combat, where you are literally marching in formations into different positions commanded by your generals to like inflict killing on the enemy. And one of the things throughout the book that I thought was super interesting is because of the nature of the combat, you know, one of the like a big jobs was whoever was the the color bearer, the person holding the flag. And like, so you have there on the U.S. side, someone holding up the U.S. flag and the Confederate side, someone has a Confederate flag. And this is a super important job. And there's a lot of letters from the officers actually documenting like, because everyone's aiming for the guy with the flag just to like demoralize yep. the other side. And there's a lot of writings of officers being like, yeah, in this battle, we knocked down their flag two times, but they brought it up two times and our flag never got knocked down. And there's just this great pride in whoever was actually carrying the flag, which, you know, we'll come into a story a little later on. Yeah. I mean, it really, the, the color bearer and, uh, I think also the drummer boys, I mean, those right. are so misunderstood because really, obviously, you know, the sort of role we know of them now is sort of from a parade perspective, but then being able to rally around the colors was the way to stay oriented in mm -hmm. battle. And you couldn't hear people because it was so loud and so smoky. So the drums were how you moved around. So, you know, these young kids and these who were beating these drums and these color bearers played uh, an extraordinarily brave role, but it was one that many people coveted because it did show you dedication to the cause. You know, part of this context also leading up to the Civil War, you know, of course, we're going to be talking about different commanders of of black units and, and white officers who supported the raising of black units. Um, Some of them were uh, not uh, quite good politically, but a lot of them were abolitionists. And of course, the abolitionist movement plays a big role in the Civil War. But what was the state of the abolitionist movement at this time leading up until the Civil War? You know, how popular was it? How long it had been around? What organizations were there? Were there different wings and, and things like that? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's an important question. And I, you know, the abolitionist movement and sort of how it's defined is is sort of one element of it, because right before, certainly in the, you know, let's say last, you really say last 10 years, but let's say the last five years before the Civil War, 1850, let's say 1856, last four years until 1860, uh, that's last five, 1861. But either way, you know, I think that when you look at that period of time, the rise of a broad anti-slavery movement, which much more significant, but the abolitionist movement, which really refers to sort of a narrower group of people which dates back really almost to the foundation of, of slavery in the country, but certainly had emerged in a major way really in the 1820s, 1830s, 1840s, absolutely a pivotal era uh, for the abolitionist movement. And, you know, that was the movement of people like Frederick Douglass and William Lloyd Garrison. I mean, many of these names that, you know, I think are well known to people to some degree, at least, uh, from, you know, the histories they may get about the abolitionist movement, the sort of ideologically, you know, oriented abolitionists. Now, there were sort of two perspectives among abolitionists, even amongst the relatively small movement. And this is, you know, becomes partially relevant to your question. And, you know, there was a one wing that, you know, didn't believe in the Constitution of the United States and thought that, you know, you should just struggle to bring down the whole thing or whatever in the fight against slavery. Uh, there was another wing, the so-called political abolitionists, who Frederick Douglass, when he sort of converted to that view famously and broke from Garrison, was one of the main leaders of, wanted to find a way to engage in the political process and with other political forces to, you know, try to push forward the fact that the, the end of slavery, essentially. But that would mean that to some degree they would be entering into alliances where many of the people were uh, not abolitionist 
at all, first and foremost, some people who were for keeping slavery in the South, and I'll come around to that, and some, you know, who were, uh, you know, and had more limited views of different types of things around slavery. But the point being, there's sort of a division between even abolitionists and the anti-slavery movement that I think is important to understanding the political dynamics of, you know, how the Republican coalition came to be, how it evolved, and, you know, sort of why it is or really sort of to understand the key role of black soldiers and sort of why it is that radical Republicans sort of came to be the driving force during the war uh, of the Republican coalition, despite perhaps not being the most uh, numerous. So I just want to start with that to say there's a little bit of a difference between the two. Mm -hmm. But, you know, at this time, in the 10 years living up, leading up to the Civil War, you know, it starts with the Fugitive Slave Act in 1850. It feels that the slaveholders are in many ways more powerful than ever, actually, 10 years before the Civil War. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, you have a situation where the changes that are happening in the country, and I think we don't really think enough about this. A lot of times when we think about the Industrial Revolution, we think about England, um, not about the United States. And that you know the changes that were coming to the country at the time in terms of the growth of industry, uh, the expansion of of smallhold agriculture, which was creating this dynamic interplay between urban areas and rural areas, the expansion of production, the immersion of the first large industrial enterprises, and of course it would be the Civil War that would really create the mass large industrial enterprise in the United States and most of the big monopoly capitalists of the Gilded Era, many of them got their start uh, in the Civil War and shortly thereafter. But all these changes that are happening that are deeply affecting what the role slavery plays in the country. And you've got an increasing number of people who feel that slavery is going to take up way more land in new parts of the country that are being incorporated as the Native Americans are being subdued and the, the, you know, what is known as the quote unquote American West starts to become more of a factor, but also, you know, even a little bit further east than that. But the concept being that if slavery is allowed to expand the opportunities that people would have to take advantage of the homesteading in the West and the ability to become a cog in the machine of this growing industrial commercial power in the North and the old Northwest, right, which is like Illinois, uh, Chicago, those kind of places, the sort of booming industrial commercial centers and the agricultural uh, elements related to that. And so they definitely were against slavery. Then certainly there were people who were, as I just mentioned, ideologically abolitionists who had sort of a morally repugnant opposition to slavery. You know, some of them uh, certainly also were, you know, very much for social equality and were opposed to racism, not just slavery. Oh, that's not all abolitionists. And, you know, of course, there was the masses of black people who were basically all abolitionists uh, and many of them held in bondage, but I think still a political force at this time that's worth referencing in the sort of key factor of the abolitionist movement that becomes a factor during the war. So anyway, so you have this situation where there's a very wide ranging subset of people who feel slavery at least should not expand. Some people felt it should be ended. Some felt it should be capped, but like it should not really be able to expand that's not really a good look. It's not going to be good for the country. And, you know, many people in the capitalist class felt the same way um, because, you know, they are the ones who are rising from this industrial commercial powerhouse that's emerging and the expansion of slavery is threatening some elements and tenets of that. And so ultimately, long story short, you have a very wide ranging coalition of people in the early 1850s who are very disgruntled with the fact that 
slave owners want to be able to expand into all the new territories and want to have their rights respected in all other parts of the country and things like the fugitive slave law. A lot of people felt even if they were OK, maybe with slavery, that if you ran away to the north that like, you know, let's just call it even. They shouldn't be able to send some sheriff to come get the person back. Obviously, the Fugitive Slave Act makes it incumbent for people to send slaves back. So you had all these different elements where the slave power was asserting itself that both sort of economically, politically, culturally was grading on the north and the western parts of the country who were widely developing in a way that slavery was becoming anathema to them. And of course, the elements within it who were just 100 percent opposed to slavery. So you have that on one side. Then on the other side, of course, you have the slave owners whose attitude was, you know, even though what was basically possible was that slavery where it was would continue for hundreds of years, they felt they had the right to go everywhere and their slave property be protected everywhere and to be able to have slaves in new territories if they wanted to. And this certainly, you know, I mean, they thought slavery was right. You know what I mean? They thought black people were subhuman. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, they were not looking to compromise on what was their core foundational belief. And of course, slave owners had been right at the core foundation of American society. So they felt they were just as justified to claim, and perhaps they were just as justified to claim slavery as a core part of the American tradition that, you know, deserved to expand and should not be extinguished and that the country shouldn't be ashamed of it. Uh, wasn't Thomas Jefferson a slave owner, George Washington, slave owner, James Madison, James Monroe also owned slaves. So, you know, a John Hancock profited off the the, the fruits of slave labor in the context of his merchant activities. Uh, so, you know, from their perspective, the what's happening in the North is, you know, just ridiculous. I mean, they feel that they're under no circumstances going to acquiesce to people who feel they shouldn't be able to do things. So you have the rise of what would come to be known. You know, you have, uh, of course, Lincoln's House Divided speech. You have Seward's irrepressible conflict speech. And that phrase, irrepressible conflict, becomes bigger as the decade of the 1850s goes on, that there was just this growing tension between North and South, really Northwest and South, although some elements of the West were pro-Confederate, over what the future, whether what the future of the country was going to be in terms of the existence of slavery, how would it be regulated and or exist. And it was people, there were many people trying to paper this over. And by 1860, that's when it couldn't be papered over. So you have this combination, just to sum it up here, of people in the North, which consists of a certain subset of farmers and people in rural areas who are becoming brought into the, the, the broader sort of agro-industrial processing sector. You had some elements of the working class in various parts of Pennsylvania, especially other parts of the Lower South, you know, also in New England and other places who, you know, because of different policies related to tariffs, which were uh, basically providing more industrial jobs, also making a lot of capitalists rich. And sort of the labor movement also starts to come to be around this time. But basically, long story short, um, opposed by slave owners because of issues around like the cost for them to buy raw materials. So that brings people into, you know, some elements of the working class and not insignificant in many ways uh, into the sort of broader 
anti-slavery coalition. And there's also some who are more ideologically motivated, like the German, a lot of the German working class who were 48ers who had fled the German revolution of 1848. So they're a part of it. You've got the abolitionist movement who want to destroy slavery and includes almost all the black people in the North. And you have all the big industrial capitalists. So you have a very wide ranging cross-class coalition of, you know, quote unquote, petty bourgeoisie, peasantry, small farmer types, some elements of the working class, uh, sort of ideologically motivated middle class elements in the professional middle class that's rising along capitalism in the North and the West on one side. And you've got the slave power, the slaveocracy, the semi-feudal slave lords who under no circumstances want to give up. Um, that really is sort of the political lay of the land coming into the election of 1860, which along with John Brown's raid, one year before, which was a huge deal. Right. For those who don't know, John Brown's raid was an attempt to seize a U.S. military weapons arsenal as the first step to arm a slave revolt. It was led by Brown, along with an escaped slave named Shields Green. They organized a total of 17 white men and around 10 African-Americans to take part in the mission. Harriet Tubman was supposed to be part of the raid, but she couldn't make it because she had fallen ill. Um, 11 were killed in the fighting. Seven were captured and quickly executed by public hanging, including John Brown and Shields Green. And the commander of the U.S. Marines who came and crushed the operation was Robert E. Lee, who would, of course, become the top commander of the Confederate Army just a couple years later. And it's actually now referred to as the first battle of the Civil War. Absolutely. In 1859, it changed the perception in the South of the North of the power of the anti-slavery message because Brown was seen as, you know, at first when he when the raid happened, it was widely denounced. But then after when various letters started coming out, writings he was saying, of course, some of his speeches, you know, in court. I have, may it please the court, a few words to say. In the first place, I deny everything but what I have all along admitted, the design on my part to free the slaves. I have another objection, and that is, it is unjust that I should suffer such a penalty. Had I interfered in the manner which I admit, and which I admit has been fairly proved. Had I so interfered in behalf of the rich, the powerful, the intelligent, the so-called great, or in behalf of any of their friends, either father, mother, brother, sister, wife, or children, or any of that class, and suffered and sacrificed what I have in this interference, it would have been all right. And every man in this courtroom would have deemed it an act worthy of reward rather than punishment. If it is deemed necessary that I should forfeit my life for the furtherance of the ends of justice, and mingle my blood with the blood of my children, and with the blood of millions in this slave country, whose rights are disregarded by wicked, cruel, and unjust enactments, I submit, so let it be done. It electrified the North and millions of people you know, were sympathizing with him. I think it was Theodore Parker, the Unitarian leader, who said that uh, Brown wasn't uh, just a martyr, but a saint. I mean, people were really all mm -hmm. about it. And even people who were denouncing him, like, say, Lincoln, 
said, even though they agreed with us in opposing slavery. So not willing to fully distance himself from Brown, Mm -hmm. which speaks to the power of the anti-slavery message. But the South then was just erupts in an uproar because, you know, these slave owners are saying, oh, my God, there's millions of people in the North who are saying John Brown is good. And this just shows, (laughs) you know, that these dangerous radicals, even if they try to preach moderation to us, just want to destroy slavery. And that really becomes a huge backdrop in the Democratic convention that comes up for the presidency in the next year, uh, where, you know, uh, uh, Douglas and other pro-slavery Northern Democrats were, you know, kicked out essentially because the Southern Democrats were the bulk of the politicians there in the slave ownership, you know, were so outraged and so desirous of pushing back aggressively in the campaign of 1860 against their, the, the perception that slavery was going down and calling the Republicans the black Republicans, uh, you know, trying to associate them with things they were certainly not associated with, like equality between black people and white people. And so, but, you know, obviously using that as a, as a scare tactic. But, you know, you could certainly see the impact of John Brown's raid was huge mm-hmm. and it set the stage for the 1860 election. And even though Lincoln and many people will point this out, of course, especially people on the left, Lincoln was you know, relatively moderate from the point of view of the anti-slavery coalition. But the context of Lincoln was that the Republican Party had been tainted because of the reaction to John Brown's raid as essentially the most hardcore abolitionist forces being the leading edge of the anti-slavery movement, which wasn't really true. But from the South's perspective, it, that that is what was happening. Um, and that was what John Brown's raid, they said there's this huge sympathetic millions. So, you know, that has to say something, um, played a big role in the deep polarization and the feeling that if the Republicans won, that would mean the end of slavery and setting the stage for secession. Because if the Republicans win, so-called quote unquote black Republicanism, that means the country is no longer worth being a part of. Yeah. And, you know, this is kind of a uh, a jumping ahead a little bit, but just to kind of help understand the divide in the country right at the right before the outset, the beginning of the Civil War, there is a lot of accounts in this book where white officers write in their letters home, uh, white officers that are then sent to the South commanding black soldiers who are former slaves, actually being shocked at how bad slavery really was, almost like they didn't really get how how vicious it was. Do you think that was like a common sentiment or like what what was with? I mean, I was kind of surprised that that came up so often in the book. These white officers being like, damn, I didn't actually know it was this bad until I like came and saw it for myself and heard the stories from the soldiers under me. Yeah, I mean, that is common. I mean, there's a cultural movement that's happening. At, you know, I mean, probably a lot of people know uh, what Abraham Lincoln said to Harriet Beecher Stowe. He's the little lady that uh, started this whole conflict or something like that. Uncle Tom's Cabin, which had come out in 1852, if I'm not mistaken, you know, had had such a huge impact on the North because most people had never really heard anything about slavery. And, you know, it's it's one of those interesting ironies of history in a way that obviously, so you know, Uncle Tom, who is the the protagonist of the book, you know, it's, it's it's sort of a protagonist from the point of view of Christian charity. And it speaks to some degree about the paternalistic nature of even a lot of anti, you know, earnest anti-slavery people and how they viewed black people. But it's sort of, you know, this the nobility of suffering in many ways 
and uh, the the power of redemption to not hate all white people, all these other things that led Uncle Tom to be associated with, you know, what people know Uncle Tom's to be associated with. But of course, he's the hero of the book and and like all slaves in the book, greatly victimized. And so the book mm-hmm. has a huge impact on people in the North, the people who read it. And that's why it sells so, so widely, because the, you know, the, the depictions are so real. And this, of course, is a major factor in how the abolitionists build their movement. Right. Is the the meetings that they were having, certainly their publications, but also the meetings where former slaves and, you know, abolitionists would speak to what was really happening. And obviously that would be shocking to people. And so, yeah, but there's still a huge amount of propaganda and slavery really was not only so well situated in the American lexicon. But of course, there was the propaganda of the slave owners and all the various factors. Like, you know, one of the main things they would always try to say is, and they would do, the slave owners would go to great lengths to try to make these comparisons. Oh, well, slaves have, are better kept, they eat better and are better clothed than the average worker mm-hmm. in Europe. And, you know, all these different things. I mean, gross manipulations, but they would go to great lengths to try to prevent it. And it's something that most people never saw who didn't live in the South. So what to believe, what's going on, who knows, right? So you have sort of a, a maybe not a broad, it, a broad indifference to the actual, and I don't mean sort of like maybe functional indifference, but people just yeah, it sounds bad, but other people are saying it's not that good. People don't have the experience to really know or to say uh, and weren't necessarily invested in it as their main issue in a broad way. Many, many people who would end up in the Union Army, that is. So the impact of black soldiers, uh, people interacting with them, seeing them fight, hearing about them fight had a huge cultural impact. And I mean, you just look at what happened in, say, Harper's Magazine and the depiction of black people from the beginning to the end. Um, and the highly stereotyped in images at the beginning and how at the end, you know, there are a number of very powerful images of wounded black soldiers. And it really did change the views of many people, not only about how bad slavery was, but about how human black people were by the force of their own example. They made significant strides from a cultural perspective. So anyway, that speaks a little bit, I think, to, to yeah, it was a transformative experience, I think, for many people um, in the Union Army to, to really be able to see it and counter it, uh, and then also see the bravery of Black people in, in trying to defeat slavery. Right. And that's uh, the story that we are going to get deep into here. And so uh, thanks for that context. And so now the Civil War starts, where we have the Confederate States secede from the Union and declare their, uh, I guess, independence, you could call it. Yes, yes. <laughs> Firing on Fort Sumter in 1861, South Carolina, many other states go. And, you know, one thing that has to be said is there, there, there is absolutely no doubt that the war is about slavery. I mean, I, I feel that mm-hmm. in most areas it's not. But, you know, just to add one little anecdote, of course, Alexander Stevens, who becomes the vice president of the Confederacy in his very well-known cornerstone speech about sort of some of the principles of the Confederacy. You know, he notes that Jefferson said that slavery is the rock upon which the old union would break. And then he goes on to say, and I always thought this was interesting, that Jefferson was wrong, though, in presenting that as a bad thing, that in fact, uh, slavery is the cornerstone of the struggle. So, I mean, you know, that's, there's no doubt about it. There are many other statements like that. So anyway, you know, a number of states to see the lower South states that were, you know, pretty much ready to go. South Carolina being in the vanguard, of course, the home of the so-called fire eaters, uh, the most aggressive pro-slavery forces, but pretty much all of the, the lower South states go pretty quickly. You know, the war comes, you know, the North didn't really want the war, 
at first, but there's actually a lot of enthusiasm on both sides. And of course, there are no black troops at this time because the union government is saying, uh, we're not against slavery. And certainly, mm -hmm. you know, we're not fighting a war to end slavery. We're fighting a war for the union. And mm -hmm. so not only would we not want to inflame the slave owners by using black people from the North, but we definitely don't want to make any sort of moves that would say we want freed slaves to like, you know, come to our lines or think they're free or fight on our behalf. Right. Um, so that's not an element to it. But, you know, there is a lot of enthusiasm on both sides. You know, both sides call up a lot of volunteers very quickly. No one really knows exactly what it's going to be like. Like what we were talking about at the beginning in terms of the violence of the conflict, no one really knew that was going to be exactly how it was. Or I mean, some people knew, but, you know, the broad impact on both sides as they thought that the other side was going to lose very quickly. So then, mm -hmm. of course, the Battle of, of Bull Run happens, the Battle of First Battle of Manassas happens, and people realize it's going to be actually real, and it's going to take a long time. So, I, I mean, I, I don't know how much you want me to say here about, like, how the stage gets set for black soldiers, but is basically the war is like not really going well because the Union is losing a lot. The South seems to be winning a lot. It seems a lot harder than it's supposed to be, especially in 1861, 1862. And so radical Republicans in Congress actually form a group in Congress that is pushing for like prosecuting the war much more aggressively. And that, of course, means you have to attack slavery, which also provides many other benefits to the South in terms of freeing up manpower, um, the ability to use slaves as, you know, labor and logistical support. But, you know, ultimately, this becomes popular because now that people are dying, it's like, yeah, we should be doing more to fight the war. And there's a lot of pressure on Lincoln to, you know, put people in place who are going to win battles and things like that. And, you know, there's just a huge discontent, you know, in the Union camp over how the war is being prosecuted. So the most radical forces are able to become a leading edge because now that more of the people in the anti-slavery movement are like, OK, you know, to hell with it. Now we actually do need to fight and crush these people. They're able to actually play a bigger role. And because of the role of the freed slave, or the, the self-freeing slaves, I'll say it, the slaves that start to just leave and come, you know, to the union lines in different places, you know, mm -hmm. they create a political issue that then is also one that can be used in a leveraged way to push forward things like the Confiscation Act. Let's actually talk about that because, so we have the Civil War starts, you know, union bases are set up, uh, you know, to fight the secessionists. Slaves are know that there is freedom in the North and that there are these union bases. And so they start fleeing to go seek shelter at the union bases. And so they are taken in. But slavery is still legal under federal law. It would be a year later that Lincoln would issue the Emancipation Proclamation, but it was still legal under, under federal law at that time. So union officers who are at these bases which are there for war with the Confederates, they would actually return the escaped slaves to the rebel slavers who would just come to the fort and pick them up. They'd be like, okay, we're not fighting now. We're just going to come pick up our slave that you have. And the Union officers would literally return them to the enemy combatant slavers. But there were other Union officers who were abolitionists and who found actually a legal loophole which they could use to protect escaped slaves. And that is, as you just mentioned, treating them not as people they were rescuing or refugees from the war they were rescuing, but treating them as property as they were under the law, and but as war contraband. Explain that. Yes. So as you say, you know, slaves start fleeing. You know, there's there's 
many people who take them back. There's some that give them refuge. That's another part of the story that we'll talk about here and how you know this happens. But you have two confiscation acts, one in 1861, one in 1862. And uh, you know, the loophole basically is like you said, since the slave owners said that the slaves were their property. And in war, you know, you can confiscate property for the prosecution of the war, that a confiscation act on all property would mean that slaves who came to the lines of the Union, they didn't have to give them back, essentially. Um, now, what happened with them after that is a whole other question. And that's, you know, a different sort of element of the battle that leads to the rise of, of black soldiers, but that at least you could do that. And at first, you know, the bill was introduced by, you know, some of the noted radicals, Charles Sumler, Ben Wade, George Julian. They had to work it out, but moderates more or less were willing to make a, a try to make a compromise, essentially, and they lead to this sort of halfway house kind of act. I mean, you know, even though they passed them, it was still, you know, they were pretty short, the confiscation acts, and they were, you know, relatively vague in many ways. It didn't make any permanent claims on their status. If the war ended tomorrow, would they go back to slavery? All those things are unknown. But obviously, it's a war measure. It's trying to be – it was expedience, really, because it didn't really make sense to send them back because it was weakening the Confederacy and it was helping the Union because they were you know, putting them to work, doing hard labor, menial-type tasks. And so ultimately, from a military perspective, it made sense on both sides for the Union um, for two separate reasons, I should say. And so ultimately, this is kind of the first step towards – the momentum that would lead to the Emancipation Proclamation. And at that time, you know, in 1862, you did have some people who were in the Union Army, as you mentioned, I would say probably most notably uh, would probably be David Hunter, who was a general who was in South Carolina uh, at that time. Like one thing that happens pretty quickly in the South is so the Union puts this huge blockade up all around the South, the so-called Anaconda Plan, what was designed to prevent the Confederacy to be able to conduct international commerce, which is obviously key given that, you know, it's a monocrop economy of cotton, and also to be able to import things into the South. So there's a number of coastal areas that become controlled relatively quickly. And so some in South Carolina were there and Hunter, uh, you know, started arming black people who were coming to their lines, which of course becomes a huge, huge issue and a massive controversy in the country. And they have to end it immediately. And mm -hmm. there was a similar issue that happened in Missouri with uh, uh, General Fremont. And so you'd had a couple of these issues that once there is this gray area of the the Confiscation Act, where you have a few more politically minded individuals who you know are for abolition, who start to arm the first black people, but even of course more conservative generals now are freely accepting black people into their lines, and then they're creating this situation where the and this is why W. B. Du Bois and and Reconstruction calls it a general strike, or one of the reasons he calls it a general strike. The other one is the actual labor practices of slaves in the South, where there were certainly strikes and slowdowns. But um, one thing that he's really emphasizing is that a huge number of black people recognize that obviously this will be key to defeating the Confederacy is for them to just leave. And if they can, to help the North. That's very clear, the political stakes and understanding of it, it's not hard to comprehend. And certainly the broad mass of slaves did it and many people very heroically fled. So then you have a large number of people who are coming and the abolitionist forces uh, and certain, and certainly the elements of the anti-slavery forces that want to prosecute the war aggressively recognize that you know there's a potent value 
and unrolling black soldiers. But of course, that really has to be accompanied with some form of abolition because you're not really going to be able to get the help of black people in fighting the war if after the war they're going to go back and be slaves. Like, why on earth would this become something you would want to support, especially the massive black people who are slaves in the South? So there's sort of a precondition aspect to it. Ultimately, I don't. The reason of the Emancipation Proclamation wasn't because they wanted black troops. The reason was because the only way to defeat the Confederacy was to destroy slavery. But that being said, the immediate side effect of that, which I think was clear to pretty much everyone, was that the possibility of enrolling black troops and using black former slaves more openly in other sort of logistical engineering type categories would be uh, significant was obviously you know, going to come and train with the Emancipation Proclamation. So in this Confiscation Act era of 1862, you have sort of the specter raised of black troops, and you can see that there's certainly a desire for them amongst many people, and you have the political circumstances that start to create the, the realities that it's possible from these pools of so-called contrabands, they were called contrabands um, mm-hmm. because of the Confiscation Act and being contraband property, for them to become pools of large-scale recruitment Uh, along with the black population in the North, which of course um, had been ready to fight for some time. So, you know, then you sort of bring all these two things together and uh, Mm -hmm. yeah, it leads you to the point of of where after the Emancipation Proclamation, the possibility of forming black units can happen, you know, very, very fast. Right. And so even after the Emancipation Proclamation, Lincoln, President Lincoln was still against allowing uh, African-Americans to join the Union Army. They had been fighting in small skirmishes in the form of militias, like, you know, if, if you have officers uh, accepting escaped slaves onto your base, and then that base is coming under attack by Confederates, it's like, you know, why not pass out some guns to aid in the defense of the base? And so that question uh, starts coming up, being debated around the country, implemented in some bases. Uh, But so we have our first actual black unit, um, not under federal control, but under state control, because, uh, you know, states have the authority to, you know, they have their like National Guard type unit. So we have the first black unit, which is the first Kansas organized by uh, Senator James Lane, who was not exactly an abolitionist himself, but this is in 1862. And there is the first skirmish. It's a small skirmish, but it is the first time that black troops in uniform are fighting Confederates. I think what's maybe most notable in a way is the fact that they, you know, came from Kansas, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, a result of the role that Kansas played in the context of the, uh, you know, sort of prehistory period of civil war of the Civil War, so-called bleeding Kansas, you know, because of something, one of the ways to paper over slavery was something called popular sovereignty, where people would vote in the new territories as they were becoming states, whether or not they would be free or slave. And so that meant that, you know, in Kansas and, and Nebraska, you know, people were rushing into the states to try to change the reality of the voting and so that they would be able to you know do this and so Kansas becomes a battleground of abolitionist and other hard, pretty hardcore anti-slavery forces there's like a low level guerrilla war fought between the anti-slavery militias the so-called jayhawkers right uh, mm-hmm. Kansas jayhawks and the pro-slavery militias the bushwhackers and so you know Kansas in and of itself is a place that is uh, you know, kind of in the the lead of this broad anti-slavery trend. Some of the most militant people, of course, John Brown had been there. And so, you know, the possibility of Kansas being a place where you could bring in 
um, blacks into sort of the regular state militaries as they're forming up was a little bit easier than in in other places. And so I think you know it's a, it's in uh, obviously the first you know battle they fight, which is a battle they fight in uh, Island Mound, which is in Missouri. And I think most of the people who were fighting then in that Kansas resident had been slaves in Missouri, and I think maybe Arkansas too. It is the first time that there are black soldiers in uniform fighting. But then because it's a small skirmish, I mean, there are, you know, all the accounts of the white officers and reporters at the time, you know, reported about the the bravery and the, the lack of retreat from the black soldiers. But there is still this big question in the discourse in the North. And that's, you know, the 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 disbelief that black soldiers can actually stand up to a real test, a big fight. And this question of will they fight, even in light of this skirmish in Missouri, is one that's yep. being debated by the politicians of the time and the, the lack of confidence in black soldiers to to act in this with the same abilities as as white soldiers. But then there is a big fight. There is a militia in Louisiana called the Louisiana Native Guard. But one of the one of the figures in this ba- battle is a, a man named Andre Kalou, who is a former slave. New Orleans was captured by the Union, and they recruited the members, Andre Kalou and other members of the Louisiana Native Guard, into the Union Army. Kalou was promoted to a captain. He was very popular in this unit. He was actually the first black officer in the Union Army. And within this new unit, you know, the Louisiana Native Guards brought into the Union Army. Well, there is also other uh, black officers. I mean, it's such an interesting history. I mean, one of the reasons he was made a captain there is because everyone in his regiment, uh, all the black soldiers spoke French as their first language or spoke only French. And Kalu was bilingual. He could speak English and French. And so they are in this initial battle in Louisiana. And this is a big fight. This is nothing like that first skirmish. They march into battle, and as soon as they make it into the range of the artillery, another very popular soldier, a sergeant named Sergeant Clansois, uh, he immediately gets hit with a direct hit by a cannonball to his head. Uh, Morale, as you are marching into the fire like this, you would think would crumble immediately, but they kept marching forward. Captain Kalu starts leading a charge on the Confederate lines. As soon as they get within musket range, Kalu's arm is completely destroyed, but he keeps, uh, keeps leading the soldiers forward in this charge. You know, he gets within 200 meters of the Confederate line. Captain Kalu is killed as he's continuing to lead everyone in. And um, it was a it was a disaster. Uh, the number of dead uh, from the Native Guards is unknown. The estimates range between 200 and 600 killed. There are a, a lot of reports from this. But, you know, this battle was covered in the press. There's a lot of reports that soldiers who were wounded would go to the medical tent, get their wounds dressed, and then go back out into the fighting. And one of the, the reports from this that really, really struck me, because this is the first big fight that black soldiers are in, and it is truly in dramatic fashion. But one thing that really stuck out to me was one of the one of the letters from one of the reporters, an article at the time, they said, quote, they made five charges on a battery, a battery being a fortified base that you can only attack from three sides. They made five charges on a battery that there was not the slightest chance of their taking. And so these heroic charges led by Captain Kalu, which was just an absolute disaster, mass masses of them were dying. They kept charging, falling back, charging again, falling back, charging again, over and over again. Another officer wrote, quote, they charged and recharged and didn't know what retreat meant. And so this was quite significant, wasn't it? Yeah, it was very significant, um, uh, you know, and it became the 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 broader 
sort of rallying cry was the New York Times that had, you know, just a few months before that, four months earlier than that, said maybe they should try out black troops. And the New York Times spoke, you know, in favor very heavily of, or not, you know, very heavily, but certainly spoke in favor of black troops in the context of what had happened there. And, I, you know, I think it speaks, you know, to a number of different factors. It was it was a major battle. And the reason people were watching it was because it was a the sort of southern most stronghold on the Mississippi of the Confederacy. So, you know, you have to understand at this time at the Civil War, rivers are actually still the main way that commerce is moving, not railroads or anything like that. And so the Mississippi River is huge because that's where a huge amount of the produce coming from the, you know, sort of what we would call the quote unquote American heartland and a lot of the, you know, key slave areas are able to get to the port of New Orleans and then get out into the world market. Um, of course, Lincoln himself famously was a flat boater on the Mississippi for a part of his young life, uh, transporting goods north to south there from Illinois. And so freeing the Mississippi was critical. Uh, control of the Mississippi was critical, not only from the economic perspective of what it could do for the North, what it could deny to the South, the ability of basically cutting the South off from Texas, especially, and the ability to, to you know, gain as much uh, sustenance from, you know, that part of the, the country. So it was all very important. So ultimately, they're laying this siege to Port Hudson because they're trying to defeat it to, um, you know, relieve Grant and Vicksburg. Didn't work out. Ultimately, as you said, it was a disaster. And then after 48 days, they had to give up. But nevertheless, after Grant does win in Vicksburg, where black people, not black soldiers necessarily per se, you know, but certainly black people as as guides and spies played a huge role in Grant's Vic, winning Vicksburg and ability to cross the Mississippi in an amazing flanking maneuver. But we could come back to that. But the point being, this is a huge battle that everyone's watching. And I think it speaks a lot to the sort of realities of black troops is that in many of the battles that they're most well known for, they tend to be kind of debacle type battles, many of them often very ill-conceived offensives. But because black troops were fighting for freedom and liberation, they were willing to give their all and fight the hardest. So in the you know sort of worst possible moments, they stand out uniquely as the most hardcore, bravest, dedicated of fighters. So many of the engagements that we know about black troops' involvement and that are the most celebrated tend to be debacles because of that. Not that they did not participate in things where they were where the union was successful, but it just tends to be a little bit less well known in a way because it's successful in sort of a an, an irony of racism, I guess, that uh, you know, it's sort of only in the context of losses that the profile of black troops tends to stand out in history the most. So it's not rare, and we'll see this as we come across other battles. Mm -hmm. But I do think it speaks to the overall heroism um as, you know, truly the 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 rock upon which the the union military machine could could build upon. Yeah, you know, that battle at Fort Hudson, you know, it there were some the aftermath was quite bad. I mean, the Confederates would not return Captain Kalu's body to his unit. In fact, they didn't do anything with it. They left it outside to rot for, I think, months until the, the Fort Hudson was actually captured by the Union Army. Uh, after that, they purged all the black officers and there would not be another single black officer again until 1865 after a long and determined struggle by black soldiers to win that right back. But, you know, the, the heroism of that battle did get press coverage. Uh, there was one journalist who wrote, quote, a race of serfs stepped up to the respect of the world, end quote. But that really wasn't enough 
to satisfy everyone about this question of should we let black soldiers into the Union Army? And there's it's why do you think that was? I mean, even after that truly heroic battle where they suffered up to uh, 600 dead, but kept charging and not retreating, you know, there people still Lincoln still wasn't convinced and uh, the rest of the political establishment wasn't convinced either. Yeah. I mean, you know, there was a huge amount of resistance. I mean, even amongst that, I mean, we have to recognize that the racism of the time had, you know, at its root, the idea that black people were intellectually inferior, childlike. And so ultimately there were many people in the North who, you know, essentially believed that. And so that's why it took a lot to prove. And even though this had changed some people's minds, a good number of people's minds, it had certainly at least built the case for those who had been advocating for it. I think for many, many people, it still felt like still felt like it was too much. There were some, I'm sure, who were also motivated by the desire of not wanting to, you know, as directly maybe close the door on a pretty racist settlement to the war and thought that it could inflame the South to use black troops. But I think by and large, it was a result of the racism and the belief that there was some sort of intellectual inferiority and that blacks ultimately would not be able to to play any significant role in fighting. And this was definitely something that those who were advocating black troops were certainly aware, certainly Governor um, Andrew of Massachusetts, who was pushing Mm -hmm. the issue very heavily. And of course, um, organized the 54th Massachusetts, but those people were, you know, very much pushing for the enrollment of regular regiments because, you know, mo- all the black regiments up until that time had all been raised more from contraband camps, by and large. And, mm-hmm. you know, none of them have been fielded as regular regiments from the north of the black populations in the north, and of course, which included many runaway slaves. And, you know, in some places like DC, this would be augmented by even more runaway slaves, but sort of regular regiments. Um, that were integrated into the the sort of state military system in a way that was more uh, less militia like and more regular soldier like and certainly more sort of professional trained and drilled rather than uh, you know recruited essentially like on the battlefield and turned into a force right there. So, so you have like everyone. So you have the country debating this question of. Will they fight? Uh, as this, while this political bait is, debate is going on, you mentioned Governor Andrew of Massachusetts, who was an abolitionist. He decides that while Lincoln and every, all the newspapers and everyone else are debating it, he is so confident that black soldiers will fight and fight heroically that he decides to put it to the test. And so he uses his authority as commander in chief of state military forces to form the 54th Massachusetts Infantry Regiment, which would soon become immortalized in history. It's the subject of the film Glory that I uh, introduced the episode with. And he recruits a young officer named Robert Shaw to command the unit. Uh, Talk about who Robert Shaw was and why you think he accepted this assignment. Well, Robert Good Shaw, the commander, you know, when Governor Andrew was forming the 54th Massachusetts, he was looking for people who came from sort of an abolitionist background. And Shaw, both of his parents had been abolitionists. They were in the Unitarian Church, which is a big part of the abolitionist movement, kind of uh, known intellectuals. His mother, I believe, I think on his mother's side, on one of his sides, they had like a big merchant fortune. So they're very rich Boston 
family and part of the Dartmouth, I think actually is where they're from, but very rich Massachusetts family. And I know he spent some time in Boston and a big part of the sort of more well-heeled element, if you will, of the abolitionist movement. So anyway, he volunteers to serve in the war pretty much right away. Uh, He's in the Battle of Winchester. He's in the Battle of Antietam, which of course is one of the most bloody battles of the war. And Mm -hmm. then he was, I think, sort of, he was injured twice, I believe, and was promoted to captain. So then anyway, long story short, Andrew was looking to find people who were sort of from a more abolitionist type background and certainly someone who, you know, from his point of view, I think the way he described it is young young men of military experience, affirm anti-slavery principles, ambitious, superior to a vulgar contempt for color and having faith in the capacity of colored men for military service. So essentially he wanted people who were, I, I I don't know how we'd consider them in our terms, but I think in their terms, more or less anti-racist, not just anti-slavery, people who would really fight for their troops to play the role that they needed to play and make the impression on the North that they needed to make, and who would understand that there was such a huge amount against them, given the race prejudice, even amongst the Union supporters, even very firm ones. Um, The deep racism of feeling of of the inferiority of black people, all those things, who could understand that, understand the struggle abolitionists have been waging against those prejudices for so many years and, you know, lead a regiment in a way that would combat those realities. And of course, who had political military experience and he'd fought and he'd fought in, you know, major battles, you know, so two sons of Frederick Douglass is actually, by the way, would end up in that regiment. But, you know, yeah, so that that's Shaw. That's where he comes from. That's why he was picked. He didn't want to do it at first. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think he was not really looking for that. But ultimately, he was persuaded uh, I believe his father actually went down there and they met for several days and, and talked about it. He didn't want to leave the unit that he was in um, at the time, but he decided to to go ahead and to and to do it because he understood what it meant politically. Right. And so they, this unit, the 54th Massachusetts, uh, consists mostly of free blacks from northern states. And, you know, they do their form. They do three months of training and they are officially born, officially get their colors in May 1963. And when they march through the streets uh, with their colors, uh, I believe Frederick Douglass was there watching the, the parade come through. Uh, you know, we mentioned uh, John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry earlier in the episode, this song that they sing, uh, the 54th Massachusetts, when they are marching down the streets with guns, is uh, the mar- John Brown's march, John Brown's body. John Brown's body lies a-moldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a-moldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a-moldering in the grave. His soul goes marching on. Yeah. Um, you know, and there are multiple versions of John Brown's body that were developed throughout the war. It had already been one of the most notable marching songs of the uh, Union Army, really, from the very beginning. Spoke to the point we were talking about earlier in terms of the impact of John Brown on the country, that there are many people who did feel, you know, very uh, 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 akin to him. And so it was a very popular Union marching song and, of course, even more popular amongst blacks who uh, added some of their own, you know, sort of words to it and different things like that. But, yeah, it was certainly a major, powerful thing. Obviously, the John Brown's body being uh, 
you know, sung by them had a significance that was very different uh, than than, you know, any other type of troops. So it was certainly a statement, I think, as well to the purpose um, where they were and they were being sent into South Carolina, um, into some of these areas that had been taken that I mentioned earlier. Okay, so the 54th Massachusetts is finally in the field. They're in South Carolina, um, but they are not fighting yet. They are just doing manual labor, cutting down trees, building up the bases, you know, tough stuff, uh, while only the white soldiers are being sent to fight. But the men of the 54th, they want to fight. I mean, of course, there's obvious reasons why they wanted to fight, you know, retribution, liberating their people, actually defeating slavery. But from all these accounts, you know, letters, articles, etc., there's an even bigger reason they want to fight. And that's to prove that they could fight. I mean, talk about this motivation of, and of the men in the 54th while they're waiting to go into battle. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is a, a huge, huge moment because they are being put on what is known as only fatigue duty. They obviously want to fight. You know, they are trying to, you know, just do whatever they can really to prove there's lobbying going on in Washington at the time to try to, you know, get more action for the colored troops and the different pieces like that. And so they're just sort of in this sense, in this sense of of limbo, more or less, you know, in terms of when or how they'll even be able to fight. And you know, there's there's sort of one issue that uh you know is 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 also cropping up in terms of the pay that they were getting. Mm -hmm. And this also speaks to their dedication, I think the point that you were making. So they're supposed to get what everyone else gets is $13 a month. Um, But when they get to South Carolina, they say they're only gonna pay them $7 a month. There's then all these protests and the state of Massachusetts says, okay, fine, we'll just make up the difference in pay. On principle though, the regiment decides to just take no money. They would rather take nothing than take the reduced pay because they weren't fighting in order to get paid. They weren't mercenaries. They were there for their own dignity and the freedom and the liberation of black people. In June of 1864, the pay would be equalized. But, you know, it just speaks to the fact that they were willing, even though they're being treated terribly, they're working in fatigue duty, um, but they're saying, well, you know, we're not going to take it. And, uh, (laughs) you know, in fact, at a later battle, they actually marched into battle and said Massachusetts and $7 a month. But, um, you know, it just speaks to how, (laughs) how much they were willing to fight what they were fighting for, the principles of the people who were in this unit, the 54th Massachusetts. And Shaw was also protesting this. You know, Shaw and the other officers did also did not take their salaries in Solidarity mm-hmm. Regiment. Uh, I think anyone who's seen the movie Glory, of course, that's, you know, one of the most famous scenes, you know, with Denzel Washington, the, tear it up, tear it up. I mean, a color soldier <laughs> stop a bullet just as good as a white And for less money too. Yeah, yeah, oh, Uncle Abe got himself a real bargain here. Hey, what you say, Buck? That's right. Slaves. Uh-huh. Step right up, make your mark. That's Get right. your slave way. What yeah, you say? Oh, all you good color boys, go ahead and sign up. That's right. Tear it up. Tear it up. Tear it up. So um, great scene in that movie. So, you know, ultimately it just speaks to who they were. And so Shaw is looking for like any opportunity for them to be able to 
to to get into battle essentially and he's pressing and looking for it and there he gets he presses hard enough that they start getting sent out on some raids and this is the only thing about glory that really does rankle me because when they go out on these raids often with james montgomery who was leading some other black regiments and was himself an old school kansas jayhawker and worked with john brown and was like an anti-slavery zealot so he had been waging sort of like a a war where they had just been kind of doing these kind of raids, just trying to sort of cause terror among slave owners, take all their property and, you know, just let them know like what it was. And and that was something, of course, that Shaw would record in his um, diary that he said something about how they need to be wiped away um, in a biblical sense. So, you know, certainly they portray him as kind of a a racist terrorist or whatever in the movie, which I think is just totally wrong. But they're like a scammer, right? Like stealing things and doing all these other things. And so ultimately that was not enough. And so Shaw was looking and then that's what brings us to Fort Wagner, um, right. you know, which we can get to. Yeah. And, you know, before we get into that, you know, we we, we are about to spoil the end of the movie Glory. But uh, I think that the film is actually much better when you know what the ending of the movie is and you know the fate of the 54th Massachusetts. And so uh, I would not turn it off if you haven't seen Glory and you want to see it, because I, I think you'll enjoy the film much more actually knowing about what happened. So so this is it. The 54th finally gets his chance. As you mentioned, Shaw was looking for um, any way to get the soldiers into the fight, which very much was supported by his soldiers. They wanted a fight. Um, and so he volunteers for this assault on Fort Wagner. Fort Wagner was technically a battery. The Confederates called it Battery Wagner, which means that you could not attack it from four sides. You could only attack it from uh, three sides. That fort, you know, got, it's, you could attack from all sides. But an extremely, extremely difficult base to attack that they wanted to take from the Confederates. And so they go into this battle, the 54th Massachusetts. They know that it's going to be a big fight just by the virtue of it being a, a difficult position to assault. But they also know that this is their moment, that the entire country is watching. There are journalists all over the parade field that are about to watch them march into battle. Uh, that They know that the abolitionists are advocating them, that have been saying they can do this. Um, and they've been waiting for months and months after all this training to prove themselves. And so this is their moment. And so talk about what happens when they finally have their moment on Fort Wagner. Yeah, well, you know, it's an amazing uh, thing. And so, as you said, Battery Wagner, it's there. It's part of the elaborate defenses of Charleston. Um, You know, picture everything I just said about the ports. You obviously need to take all the ports. Charleston, of course, was, you know, the most symbolic port because South Carolina was the most symbolic slavery state. And so you had to get there. You had to take it. Wagner um, was important because of the way that's laid out to really be able to, to take the port. So, you know, the only way to get there is to go down this long sandbar basically on an island where you're totally exposed and you know i think that's something like uh 1600 yards pretty narrow there's marshland all around it so you know they're going to know you're coming basically there's no doubt about that and then you have the this this battery this fort which has these walls so you know, what the Confederates had learned from some earlier port takings is that the Union Navy, which was very powerful, and there are many black sailors too, by the way, and black sailors um, were in the Navy from the beginning, but there are many, many black sailors. But um, the Union Navy was powerful and could bombard these forts. And, you know, because of the, you know, increase in military technology, even a lot of these relatively sturdily built forts were now more vulnerable too. But, um, you know, even, even stout forts can only hold up for but so long to a dedicated naval bombardment. So what they had done is they had basically built 
the walls the way they wanted on this incline out of you know various materials. And then they'd covered them with a ton of sand. So when you shot the cannonballs, the sand would absorb the, 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 the hits. So it meant that you could sort of hunker down inside of this um, massive sand bunker, essentially, ride out the wave without any real casualties and be ready to fight. And so the massive bombardment before the battle, which was supposed to, like, you know, do something to these Confederates, has zero effect. And they're just waiting. So they're just yep. waiting. They're going to see you coming. And you have to cross a little ditch. And then you have to go to the top of the fort to get over the walls, which means you have to climb up this, like, you know, 45 degree angle you know, mountain of sand uh, where they can fire down on you directly. So there's basically no way that this isn't going to be, a, you know, more or less a suicide mission. I mean, that there's no doubt about that. And I think that it just lets you know the sort of role they were going to play. Shaw was enthusiastically rushed to put them at the head of this when he, they were in the meeting about what they were going to do because he knew he understood. And again, this is why Andrew wanted to pick who he wanted to pick. He understood the nature of being the front of an assault like this, what was likely to happen and what it was going to look like. Um, and if they won, you know, nothing could be better. So anyway, long story short, they're they're getting ready to march and uh, and to speak to this issue of the standard and march down this this little spit of land um, where everyone's going to see them coming for sixteen hundred yards into defenders who are 100 percent ready. A general comes to, like, pump them up. And, you know, the, there's many different sort of elements of this. Some say Shaw was wearing a red sash around his, his waist, which officers sometimes did, uh, smoking a cigarillo as the general's pumping them up. And the general's, you know, doing his whole thing as generals pump people up. And he points to the guy who's holding the standard at the time, the flag at the time. And he says, if this man shall fall, who will pick up the flag? And uh, Shaw raises his hand. And so it just gives you also a sense of his mentality. So then they go down. They get there, they get to the wall, the Confederates just open up on them and it's an absolute bloodbath. I mean, they're aiming down on them on an incline where there's very few places to hide. You basically have to go like halfway up the wall and hug the wall. And, you know, there's a, it's sand. So it's like you can like run up it really fast, you know, and it's like a big sand dune, essentially a big high inclined sand dune. And so that's at first. So they, they become pinned down essentially right away because there is just so much killing going on very quickly. So after they're pinned down for a little bit, Shaw realizes that the only way out is through and that they have to just push through to the top and take as many casualties as they can and fight inside of the fort. So he just gets up and just starts running to the top and rallying people around him. And he gets up to the top and they cut him down, they shoot him. And when he falls, the soldiers who, you know, at this point love Shaw, they surge to Shaw to get his body and they bring it back down in the spirit of anger. You know, then people just start surging up to the top and the battle is on in earnest. And so it's basically just an assault that is going on, you know, well into the night. It started at like 7.45. I think it goes until like nine something um, the whole time. So it's like a couple hour, you know, an hour or so of you know very serious fighting i think like 270 people were killed wounded or captured out of like 600 people there um you know there's all sorts of things william carney of course who was many decades later in 1900 uh, awarded the medal of honor for what he did there a flag bearer fell and he picked it up carried it back to the top went back and forth 
you know, four or five different times. They were just going up, coming down, going up, coming down, trying to take the top. Sometimes they would get to the top and be partially into the fort and it's hand-to-hand fighting. And after a few times going back and forth, uh, one of the officers told Carney to just, uh, you know, hand off the flag and and fall back. And he says to the people around him, it became a very famous phrase, uh, I did my job, boys. That old flag never touched the ground. And that, of course, would be a song that would actually later be turned, uh, that would be made in in his honor. And so uh, ultimately they have to fall back. There was no more doubts at that point because they had lost so many people, fought so bravely. The fact that Shaw, I think, as a white person had died and he was buried by the Confederates in a mass grave uh, with many of the soldiers. And there was outrage about that in the North because you're supposed to bury officers, you know, on their own with more pomp and circumstance. And his father spoke out and said, no, you should leave him where he is because that's where he would want to be the greatest place of honor for him to be buried there at those soldiers. And so that had a huge impact on the North. And then it was, you know, no one could really argue at that point uh, that black troops not only weren't going to fight, but what would fight very hard and in ways that were, you know, deeply gallant at the forefront. Right. And while the 54th lost, you know, over 250 people, the Confederates had only 36 killed, or at least that's what they reported. So definitely uh, a lot of the killing was on one side. You know, Sergeant William Carney, who you mentioned, who was the carried the flag throughout the entire thing. He was wounded two different times during that engagement and yet still uh, carried out his duties uh, holding the flag. He went on to be uh, a letter carrier for uh, about three decades before um, he died at tragically in an elevator accident, actually. Um, but, you know, Shaw's death and, you know, this, this charge leading his men up the hill, you know, exposing himself, beholding nothing but his sword, uh, I think, and probably his pistol. You know, I, some, some of his uh, writings from prior, I mean, it, it seems like he knew that he was going to die on this mission as well. Yeah, I think, I think so. I think that he had a very good sense of what the, what the stakes were in terms of the battles that they were going to have to fight. I mean, I definitely think that, you know, he understood that the only way for black soldiers to really be able to make any sort of of impact was going to be if there was a, you know, brutal major conflict where nobody could really doubt their heroism and where anyone else who saw it from different supporting units and white troops and others, uh, newspapers, whoever was there would have no capability, mm-hmm. uh, would have no ability to do anything other than report back this unbelievable heroism and bravery that it had to be a, it had to be a statement basically. Uh, and right. I think he almost certainly having been in battle himself, been in, you know, a bloody, bloody battle in Antietam had to have known that there's no way you do something like that and live to tell about it, or the chances of it are are very low, at least. Yeah, you know, uh, the, the film which depicts him is titled Glory. Of course, the hymn Glory, Glory, Hallelujah being the, the chorus of, of the march. You hear that word a lot, glory, but I I feel like I I didn't really understand the concept of glory until I I learned about the Civil War and particularly black soldiers in the Civil War. Mm, mm. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think it shows the, the, you know, the depths of racism in the country that that's what it took to really wake up a lot of people. Yeah. And you you mentioned that, of course, there were the journalists that were there that reported the heroism. But there is a piece of writing that 
that was popular at the time that uh, was not from the actual battle, but when the wounded soldiers of the 54th were returning after the battle. And I wanted to read this quote. It's from a spectator. So when, when the 54th Massachusetts, when all of the wounded were loaded onto ships and sent back to New York City, a lot of people came to watch them come off the boat. You know, a lot of people had never had seen black soldiers before, you know, let alone uh, black soldiers who were in this very famous battle at this time. And one of the spectators wrote, quote, the wounded of the 54th Massachusetts came off from the boat first. And as those sad evidences of bravery and patriotism of the colored men passed through the lines of spectators, every heart was melted with tenderness and pity. We will vouch for it that no word of scorn or contempt for Negro soldiers will ever be heard from any who beheld that spectacle. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's no doubt about it. And I think that that, you know, is what created the sort of cultural changes in the country that made universal suffrage for black men possible with the 15th Amendment as, as the and for certain this was you know, quite discussed when the amendment was being passed, all of the amendments, the 13th, the 14th, and the 15th, was the role in the heroism of black troops and the injustice it would mean to deny a security and rights and civil rights to, you know, those who had fought at places like Fort Wagner. Right. And so now after the 54th makes this huge statement, which they consciously did. Uh, now we have black units formally sanctioned by Lincoln. They're expanded not from just infantry regiments to also cavalry and artillery units. People are flocking to join. Tons of units have, are formed. Um, you have free blacks, former slaves, and different units many times together, um, which it, to me is, is wild. I mean, the, if, if you just escaped slavery, uh, just yeah. escaped bondage, and then y- you could just go to the North and be free. But then the fact that so many actually just went and then enlisted in the army to go directly back to the place that they were that they escaped from, except knowing that they could be recaptured and re-enslaved. I think that was just something that throughout the book just really, really hit me over, over again. Just the willingness to go back and fight after finally after being freed from a lifetime of, of bondage. No, absolutely. Ultimately, 179,000 black men would fight as soldiers, 19,000 would serve as sailors in the Navy. You know, innumerable black women served as nurses, spies, scouts. Of course, Harriet Tubman, you know, someone else who uh, could have just lived a life in the North but kept going back to the South and risking her life. Mm-hmm. And the famous uh, Combahee River raid, where she uh, led troops there on a raid. Yeah, the Kambahi River Raid is very significant because it was the first and only military action in the Civil War led by a woman and a black woman at that. Uh, Tubman did all of the preliminary scouting and intelligence work, then led three big Union steamers through a complicated obstacle course of Confederate mines in the river where, you know, she had determined where those mines were and could navigate through without the, the ships being blown up. And this was definitely a combat mission. Confederate artillery were firing on the ships during the raid. So Tubman and a black infantry unit, the 2nd South Carolina, in the middle of the night, followed this river, attacking plantations, burning them to the ground, and rescuing all of the slaves. About 750 enslaved men, women, and children were rescued in this operation, and over 100 of the men rescued immediately joined the Union Army to join the fight. There's a scene in the 2019 film Harriet where Tubman gives a speech to the 2nd South Carolina right before the raid. Definitely not the actual speech she gave, but for sure captures the spirit of the moment. Slavery is still alive. Those rice fields downriver feeding rebel troops with the toil of a thousand slaves still in bondage. Our mission is to free those slaves. 
We've waited years to be allowed to fight in this war against our own enslavement, and it will not be won without us. Now it's our time. You ready to kill the snake? You have the conventional fighting of Union Army versus Confederate Army in these parade ground battles, but then you have on the side these really radical actions. That was a true revolution against slavery. Uh, and those troops that she was leading there as a scout, helping them you know, get in and make their landing, were led, by the way, uh, by James Montgomery, who we mentioned earlier um, uh, in relationship to, to the Jayhawkers in the South. And then, you know, just an innumerable number of laborers, guards, cooks, chaplains, carpenters, whatever, spies. I mean, I mentioned steamboat pilots, surgeons, teamsters. I mentioned sort of spies and others earlier, and I mentioned Grant. And I think it's worth mentioning here. I mean, you know, Vicksburg, and I mentioned the, the significance of the Mississippi, so just remember that, was the key city. It was the citadel on the Mississippi. And the fall of Vicksburg, by the way, was a huge turning point in the war. But uh, it happened right around the time of the victory of Gettysburg. But um, July 4th, actually, both of them at the same uh, time. But anyway, long story short, it, they, it was very difficult to take. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why. I won't get into the whole issue of how relevant it is. But Grant decides that after all these other things has failed, he's going to try something super bold. He's going to take 50,000 troops. He's going to basically cut his supply chains. He's going to march you know, deep down and around across the Mississippi and come up and surround them um, totally when uh, on their land side, where they had been getting most of their reinforcements and provisions from, and lay a siege on them and take Vicksburg that way. But how they don't know where they're they don't know where they are they're deep in mississippi so how are they going to take 50,000 troops and get around how are they going to get provisioned well they did have some help from deserters and people seeking money from the white confederacy but probably the number one source of information they were getting was from as they would call them the so-called contrabands and these former slaves and even some not former slaves who would steal away in the night and go back to the plantation were bringing them evidence on you know where the food where food is mm -hmm. what plantations had the biggest hordes when there were attacks coming and then crucially where they could ford the mississippi river because remember getting across rivers is the biggest mm -hmm. engineering challenge of war at this time. And if you've seen the Mississippi or any of these big rivers, imagine how do you get all this stuff across? 50,000 people, cannons, horses, wagon trains. So you have to find areas that uh, there are easy places to cross and landings that you can use, you know, shallow boats in and things like that. So there was a landing that was known to local people, but wasn't on any map that a, a, a formerly enslaved person led them to and showed them you can cross here. And it allowed them to cross and to be able to fully encircle the Confederates and then defeat them in Vicksburg. So a huge role by sort of, quote unquote, non-combatant African-Americans in the South, but, you know, clearly a key part of the war effort in and of itself. Yeah. And, and, you know, we had these initial battles, you know, you have Fort Wagner, um, you have Fort Hudson, you know, and, and these are battles where black soldiers really distinguish themselves, but they're battles that they lose quite badly. Um, but then once you have the proliferation of black units, you have like big victories by black soldiers against the Confederates. I mean, there's one that stuck out to me is the the battle of Honey Springs, which is in, was an Indian territory that was just West of Arkansas, where, um, you know, this is extremely, extremely hot. One of the white officers noted that before the battle, when everyone was getting ready and they knew it was just going to be a scorcher, that the black unit 
it, all took their shirts off, which he had never seen before and no one had ever uh, thought to do before, you know, wearing these big, thick wool uniforms. And in that battle, the black unit was right behind one of the white Union units, which was retreating and running away. And so the Confederates were pursuing them, thinking that everyone was retreating. And then as they're they're pursuing the white unit that's retreating, this the unit of uh, black soldiers did not retreat. They were just sitting there waiting with a killing volley from their muskets. And then as soon as the white unit had scattered past them, the Confederates were right in front of them, completely unprepared, and just got completely mowed down. And in that battle, 150 Confederates were killed, while only two uh, black soldiers in that unit lost their lives. And so uh, that's just one of many examples where there are these big victories by black troops over their former slavers. And so, of course, the Confederates completely freak out once this becomes a phenomenon. I mean, the 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 Southerners, you know, they had to use the, the power of fear to enforce slavery. I mean, it, slavery could only, the glue uh, that held together slavery was terror and constant terror and violence. And now that was turned on them. Their former property coming back in uniforms with guns. And so the, the Confederates have to, you know, uh, they, are, they do not know how to handle this. And so the way that they handle it is, of course, they initially pass a law saying that, you know, at this time, like if you were, and this actually speaks to this, you know, when we talk about the the heroism of black soldiers and, and a lot of times in this book, it is compared to that of white soldiers because it is a different situation. In the Civil War, if you were a white soldier on either side and you were wounded or you surrendered and just put down your gun you were going to be fine. You'd be a POW. You'd be treated under the, the, the ethical laws of war. And then most likely, if you were a POW, you were just going to get sent back home in one of these prisoner swaps. The, unions and the, the Union Army and the Confederate Army were constantly doing prisoner swaps. Or they'd give each other lists. Here's who we got. Here's who you got. And let's just swap them up. And so for a white soldier on the battlefield, if it got too hot, you know you could just put your gun down, walk to the Confederate side and be like, all right, I'm a POW now. And then you'd probably be back home in a month. But the Confederates would not accept that, accept treating black soldiers as POWs. And they had a policy that, you know, if they were an escaped slave that could be returned to their owner, they would return them to bondage. But more often than not, they were, the policy was to execute any black soldier who was captured or wounded on the battlefield. And this becomes the this becomes the the way that they operate. Uh, there was uh, massacres wherever they win on the battlefield. There is a, a significant massacre called Fort Pillow, where um, you know uh, th- the book says, "quote Even the sensationalist reportage of the day could barely match the awful tales that would be related in eyewitness testimony given before a congressional investigating committee." There's about a hundred uh, black soldiers killed, about 137 missing. Many of them likely returned to slavery. Everyone wounded or ec- or uh, every Everyone wounded or surrendering was executed. Um, There's a a quote from that battle where the white Confederates, as they were executing people, saying, what are you doing? You're fighting against your master. Um, Then you have incidents where the Southern civilians are actually aiding in the lynchings and because they are very unhappy about uh, armed black men being in their area. And so there becomes to be all these ways of dealing with this. I mean, there is, you know, kind of one story that stuck out to me of, uh, I, I forget where it was, but there was um, the, a white 
officer commanding a black unit came upon a, a massacre of black soldiers. They had burned some of them alive. A lot of them had just been beaten to death. And he had heard there was people there who said that the civilians aided the Confederates in carrying out this massacre. And so he said, okay, every home and piece of property within a five-mile radius is getting burned to the ground and kind of using terror to fight terror. Um, but this this issue of the Confederates capturing black soldiers, returning them to slavery and executing them, you know, Link, this became like a big issue and Lincoln had to have some kind of response to this. Um, and so he issued this order that really surprised me. He said that to counter this Confederate policy, he said, for every black soldier that is captured and returned to slavery, I will sentence one Confederate POW to hard labor. And the term of that sentence of hard labor, you know, forced hard labor will be until that black soldier is freed from bondage. And then he said, for every black soldier that is executed on the battlefield, I will execute a Confederate POW to compensate. I don't know how much that policy actually played out, but the fact that he did that as this political statement was quite interesting to me. And then uh, last thing I'll say is there was this other story that stuck out to me. I believe it was General Wild, who's a pretty interesting guy. He had one of his arms amputated up to his shoulder, which he kind of partially did himself. Um, and then his other hand was completely mangled, yet he was still in the battle and commanding a black unit. And he actually hanged a white Confederate POW in front of his black soldiers, which had a, a pretty profound impact on the people who were watching. Uh, and the, the things that they wrote afterwards were uh, definitely very much in support of this very bold action. And so it wasn't a question necessarily, but I mean, just this issue of the Confederates need like f totally freaking out about the fact that there are now black soldiers not only holding guns, but defeating them in battle. Yeah, I think it's a good point in defeating them ideologically because it showed that all of their lies about mm. people were totally false and that their attempts to disperse, to besmirch the the good name of, of black people by saying we were less intelligent, um, nothing but big children, uh, you know, licentious and out of control, lacking in bravery, loyal, uh, totally untrustworthy and unloyal, disloyal, that all these things were just completely and totally false and that the caricatures of the, you know, the Sambos and the Aunt Jemimas that they had pumped out all over the world were, you know, just that, like nonsensical propaganda. So, you know, it really was a huge, it was something that they had they had no choice but to react to. And as you said, they had to use fear, of course, to even try to control their own people, because as I was mentioning earlier, you know, slaves were recognizing what was going on and they were not only leaving, they were becoming generally more rebellious, they were refusing to work more and strikes and slowdowns. And so ultimately they were playing their own part and also bringing the Southern machine to a halt. And so terrorizing people and making them feel like the cause of the union um, was was hopeless, was obviously going to be key and going to be important. And I think that certainly that is is what that speaks to, to me. I mean, the level of, of outrage and I think the elements of, you know, divine retribution, as it was later called, uh, that was being visited upon many of these people, I'm sure in many ways they were probably terrified, you know, that they were now potentially subject to mm -hmm. the whims of those who they had so brutally and inhumanely and cruelly treated for hundreds of years. So I think also there's probably an element of fear in their reaction. There's a number of great stories. Um, you know, the first regiment of the District of Columbia, which is a black regiment, uh, when they were in the 
latter stages of the war in 1864, and they were in the Virginia Peninsula, and they heard a story from a runaway about a master not that far from there who was like a brutal whipper. And so they just rode down on this dude's plantation, pulled him out of his house, whipped him a few times, and then gave the whip to these women slaves who hated him and let them um, you know, <laughs> whip him right there in front of all the other people. And in fact, Confederates started complaining to the Union Army, these slave owners saying, and they were complaining, like they would send little letters, like, how could you do this? But also, <laughs> they were writing about it in the Richmond newspapers about these great outrages of these black troops that were going around terrorizing white plantation owners all across Virginia and all in the Richmond region and how you know, horrible and unchivalrous this was. But, uh, you know, those kind of stories are, you know, do abound and, and I think in and of themselves also speak to the real radical revolutionary character of at least one aspect of the war in the ending of of, of slavery and the empowering empowerment of, of black people to take right, their rightful revenge upon their previous uh, so-called owners. Yeah, I mean, there's this one really powerful moment in the book where one of the white officers writes, you know, this is, uh, you know, they're in, in a southern state. Uh, his soldiers are uh, former slaves and they, they've they reached a spot near the river and two of his soldiers say to him, I watched my brother lynched on that very spot. And that was the spot that they were occupying as the army and actually going and killing the people that did it. And so just the, and that officer was just shocked by that. But the... That context is just so, just has such a weight to it. You know, this idea that you couldn't be captured um, is something that, you know, becomes a common thing throughout. It's that, you know, to know that you had to fight and fight to that. There's even uh, white officers who say that that was, that was the best policy that the Confederates could have put in place because it meant that they were going to fight to the death, all of the black soldiers. And that probably backfired on the, on the Confederates, their inability to treat them as, as legitimate uh, POWs. There are many battlefield stories of people witnessing black soldiers who knew that they were dead to rights, basically pretending to surrender so that when the Confederate got close enough enough to detain or execute them. They got in one final attack, uh, killing the Confederate soldier before they were ultimately killed themselves. But then there's all these, you know, interesting stories. Like there's, there's one in this really big battle where the surgeon of the unit, when all of the wounded soldiers are, you know, go, they go to the rear and then they get transported back to the, to the field hospital. The surgeon said that all the black soldiers were the priority because they were retreating. It was a big retreat. The surgeon said only black soldiers get to go on the transport until there's no more black soldiers left. And all the white wounded soldiers, you have to wait until all the black soldiers are evacuated and saying pretty plainly, if uh, if you are captured, you're going to be fine. And but if the black soldiers are captured, they're going to be enslaved or killed. And we're you know, we're not going to let that happen. Yeah, you know, I mean, it, it's it's certainly interesting to see all these different anecdotes and to hear about them, and you know, the fact that they're certainly collected in this book, um, like Men of War by and uh, No Andre Trudeau. But of course, I think there's probably so many more out there to be unearthed, and I think that it really, again, I keep I keep hitting this theme, but I think it's a relevant theme and an important theme to really understand the politics of the next ten or so years. Um, you know, the real impact of black soldiers from a cultural perspective on white soldiers, in particularly in the war, certainly the white public, but certainly also the soldiers who were there, and the role that played in the context of the civil rights bills that, that, that uh, you know, succeeded the Civil War. 
We have we went from there's being debate about black soldiers can't fight to uh, that question has very much been answered. You have the proliferation of black units. They are fighting everywhere. They are sweeping through Confederate states. They are liberating slaves. N- hundreds and hundreds of liberated slaves are going back into the army to go fight their former masters. And so there's this it's huge and, and the the fact that there are literally you know uh, uh, over a hundred thousand armed black people in the South all of a sudden uh, just is it's just a tectonic shift from hundreds of years of slavery leading up to that, things are looking very different. It looks like a huge change is happening in the country. But also something that happens, the first mutiny among black soldiers. You know, I don't know if you could, if, if it accurately could be called a mutiny, but in November 1863, you know, you still have this issue of unequal pay. Um, where, you know, you're getting about half the salary of white soldiers. So there's a sergeant, a 23-year-old sergeant, William Walker. He is a former slave. He's a combat veteran. And he wanted to protest the issue of unequal pay, um, much like the 54th, uh, but did it in a little different way. So what he did was he marched uh, his men to the company commander's tent, and he had them stack their arms, which basically just put all your rifles in a little pyramid in front of the commander's tent. And he said that we are not going to do any more duties until you know, you give us equal pay. So, of course, they were arrested. Sergeant Walker was court-martialed. And a year later, he was actually executed by firing squad for mutiny. And so clearly there are some major contradictions going on, despite this massive change that has happened and the acceptance of black soldiers as as men, really. Uh, but then you still have these incidents. And, you know, there was 19 Union soldiers total who were executed for mutiny over the course of the Civil War. 14 of them were African-American. And so this is just the first of a couple other mutinies, but it, it exposes that there was still quite a bit of contradiction under the surface, even not just the issue of unequal pay, things like harsher punishment, but there's even situations where, you know, the one of the marching songs of the first Arkansas was, we're done with hoe and cotton, done with hoe and corn. Yet many of the black units were put to work, sometimes on like the sand plantations they escaped from, you know, doing the very same thing. And so there was clearly some some major issues uh, related to labor, pay and punishment going on. Yeah, I think that, that that's certainly very true. And I mean, I think it speaks to the broader contradictions to where most People who were anti-slavery, even most people who wanted to prosecute the war more aggressively from an anti-slavery perspective, even some people who are waking up to the humanity of black people still felt black people were either fundamentally inferior and or should be totally segregated from them. Most often they felt both those things at the same time. They did not want, quote unquote, social equality, which would become a poisonous phrase, you know, certainly during the abolition times, during the Civil War and during the rest of the 1800s and into the 1900s until the Civil Rights Movement. And the context uh, of, of, of all of that is playing into this. And I mean, it's also the context of the war itself. I mean, you know, you mentioned a lot of times you look at a lot of these battles we talk about in the West, mound this, mound that. Mm -hmm. The reason a lot of these places are called mound something is because they're built on the traditional mounds that were built by the indigenous cultures that lived there, um, you know, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years uh, before they were moved out because of the nature of settler colonialism. And, you know, the love, the, the trail of tears and all of those things were about clearing land for slavery in the Southeast. And so the inner play of the role of slavery and genocide in Native Americans in creating a cultural matrix of extreme racism in the United States mm-hmm. was absolutely a factor in how black troops were treated. And, you know, the fact that they were able to persevere and 
hold such a, a, a powerful role despite all that is part of, I think, what helped them become a powerful cultural force. But it could only go but so far. And the foundational role of racism as a tool of social control and division in the country in order to underpin a machine of capitalist accumulation you know, certainly was still necessary in the context of how the leading edges of the Republican Party, the big capitalists who had later become monopoly capitalists, felt society should be run and controlled with the subordination of black people to some degree and certainly um, the use of, of racism as a, as a divisional tool in order to impose a, a, an easier to rule set of popular classes. So, you know, we see that with black troops and we certainly see, like, I think all of the contradictions within the broader union coalition, all of the contradictions within the country at the time, all really sort of playing out there in terms of, uh, you know, some of these other elements of, you know, disproportionate treatment when it came to pay, when it came to discipline, uh, when it came to doling out combat duties and so on and so forth. Yeah, I mean, there's another mutiny that comes uh, actually a year after the war, um, but it's in Jacksonville when uh, Florida's under, you know, I guess you could call it union occupation. Um, and there is a soldier named uh, Private Jacob Plowden. And there is this a practice of punishment for black soldiers by the union officers where you'd be hung by your thumbs, which so like a rope would be tied around your two thumbs and strung up. And so you're you were on your tippy toes or your feet barely touching the ground and your thumbs would be dis dislocated and just a really horrible, painful position to be in. And, and Plowden was an ex-slave. Uh, he was a corporal. He was a Civil War veteran, but he had been demoted because two years prior to this incident, he was ordered to hang another black soldier by his thumbs and he refused the order. So he was put sent to jail for, for 30 days and, and demoted back down to private. But on the base, this is in, in 1865, uh, there's a black soldier being hung by his thumbs and is really suffering. And so Private Plowden gathers a several dozen other black soldiers and says, we are not accepting any more of this type of cruel slavery era punishment from our white officers. So they go to free the guy. One of the white officers pulls out a gun, shoots one of them, and then Plowden says, oh no, we're going to fight back. They all run to the tents, get their guns, come back, start shooting the officers. Uh, and then of course they are arrested. Plowden uh, and five other men who are part of the mutiny were executed by firing squad. And and uh, the story goes that, that Plowden uh, smiled before he died and said, goodbye, my boy, to a child who was watching the execution. And so there were, of course, just these really major struggles happening even after the Union victory and the distinguishment of black soldiers and you know the, the fact that they could be be executed just for for demanding uh, the equality that they had been fighting for throughout the war and so you know the next two years of the war as you mentioned ends in in 1865 I think the biggest battle that uh, black soldiers played a significant role in was the Battle of Alusti in Florida where almost 2,000 Union soldiers were killed but you know wrap up the end of the war for us yeah I mean I think you know really sort of the the 1863 you know the the middle of the summer, the Battle of Gettysburg, the fall of Vicksburg is, you know, ultimately the turning point of the war, although it will still go on for two more years. 1864 is really the process of the Union sort of rolling up the Confederate army on both sides. Of course, there is, uh, you know, Sherman's famous March to the Sea uh, and the third battle, I believe, of Sherman's March to the Sea. This is in 1864. So they sack Atlanta and then Sherman wants to make a point, you know, really to show that they're going to destroy the slaveocracy by marching, giving up their supply chain, marching through 
Georgia up into Savannah. And then, of course, he goes from Savannah up through South Carolina. Um, but the march to the sea and sort of living off the land, which means laying waste to the plantations and burning them down. Uh, and certainly black troops play a role in that. And along the coastal battles that continue at that time, including the taking of Charleston, uh, the taking of Wilmington, uh, the Battle of Fort Fisher. And then certainly, of course, in the Virginia theater where Grant is, where they end up playing a pretty big role in the siege of Petersburg and then the siege of Richmond. And, you know, maybe the sort of most well-known battle involving black troops in that 1864-1865 period is the Battle of the Crater in the siege of Pittsburgh. And it's an interesting uh, sort of battle because, you know, there's this, so you always talk about fighting the last war, right? So when Lee starts to retreat, when Grant starts to move up through Virginia, he more he decides to take hard defensive positions because the nature of 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 weaponry and things like that digging trenches and uh, especially is becomes a very effective way of defending territory and lands. They start digging all these trenches uh, around Richmond, all the way encompassing Petersburg, and there's a long line. There's basically a siege that sets in. So, sort of the foundation of trench warfare is in the Civil War. Um, now, of course, by World War One, we see that that is out of date, right? And you see this impact of the same concept. But that being said. There's a long siege, how to break the siege. There are some miners in the Union Army that are like, we can tunnel underneath the, you know, obviously underneath the ground, from where <laughs> we're at to where they are, and then we'll pack a bunch of explosives in there and we'll blow it up. And when we blow a huge hole in the line, then we can like rush our people in around the crater, get into the rear of the enemy, and we'll be able to easily break through and take Petersburg, which means that you'll take Richmond, Petersburg, just south of Richmond, um, very quickly. So uh, they decide they're going to do it. They have this this whole plan. And a big part of the plan is for black troops to lead the way. And it's a tricky thing because it's going to be this huge explosion. So you have to go around the crater, not through it. And you have to be thinking about all because you'll get stuck down there. Um, you have to think about all these other factors. So they were drilling to be, you know, to the impact of the explosion, how to go around the crater, blah, blah, blah. So in a intense act of racism, there are some several there are several generals who don't agree with that. They convince Grant not to let black troops be the lead, to let some white troops who had not done any of the drilling be the lead. They totally blow it. They just go directly into the crater. So now there's just a huge battle, hand to hand, you know, just just nightmarish, horrific style hand to hand fighting in this giant crater. I mean, just absolutely nightmare terror situation. But a number of black troops were involved because they came in subsequently later. And that was a major factor. There's the Battle of Olesty in Florida. That was the battle I mentioned earlier where the 54th marched into battle saying Massachusetts and $7 a month, a sort of ill-conceived raid on Florida where black troops played a big role as white troops were falling back in a big defeat and black troops stepped in to cover their, cover their retreat. Uh, one private from New York, I believe he was a private, wrote back to someone. He said that the colored troops came in grandly and they fought like devils. And so that was a major battle of black troops as well. Not really a major battle in the course of the war, but certainly one where the, the heroism of black troops remained. And then, of course, as I also mentioned earlier, you know, once Richmond was taken 
and uh, you know, black troops, the 36th Infantry were the first troops to enter into Richmond. A number of other black units entered into Richmond, and the 36th had been mainly recruited from former slaves in the Hampton Roads area, which of course is one of the strongholds of slavery in the country, certainly in the state of Virginia. So the symbolism of it, uh, uh, you know, was was huge for uh, the country and certainly for black people to have those black troops march into Richmond. Now, of course, the war would go on a few more weeks after that and uh, until they'd surrendered Appomattox. But nevertheless, it was the symbolic end of the war. And the fact that black troops were the first end was certainly a symbolic end when you think about the fact that John Brown had kind of started things off in 1859. Right. And as you mentioned, about 180,000 black soldiers fought in the Union Army. Around 40,000 were killed. 25 were awarded the Medal of Honor. And what began for Northern states as a war to, quote unquote, restore the Union, quickly ignited a social revolution against slavery, one there was no turning back from. And as you described, the backbone of that revolution was the mass organization of black soldiers, which started as illegal in 1861, and by 1865, because of their determination and heroism, had grown to about 175 black army regiments. So now that the war has ended, it ends with a whole new world, which begins this new phase known as Reconstruction, which W.E.B. Dubois described as an idealistic effort to construct a democratic interracial political order from the ashes of slavery. But just to bookend this story of black soldiers in the Civil War, in 1865, these units don't just leave the defeated South, but black units remain stationed there as basically enforcers of law and order, where just a couple years later, you have the former Confederate officers forming the Ku Klux Klan to continue waging war against the building of racial equality. Yeah, well, you know, the black troops, um, you know, were some of the troops that, you know, became pretty heavily used in the earliest days of Reconstruction, so-called military Reconstruction, um, when a number, when, you know, the southern states were mainly disenfranchised and broken up into uh, military regions and the various military regions that were controlled, you know, by the army and a number of the uh, troops that were still remaining, because, of course, the majority of the army is demobilized. So a number of the troops that were remaining were black troops. So, you know, there was a... This was a relatively brief period military reconstruction because it was uh, being used as a holding pattern because the country was discussing what really should happen. Now, of course, uh, the death of Lincoln in 1865 had changed so much, and there were so many different views about what exactly was or should happen um, in the context of uh, reconstruction, what should come after slavery. And, you know, so there are different sort of histories to different elements of this in the different military districts and when certain states became, you know, were able to come back into the union, what the different sort of rules would be and how they sort of changed at different times. But certainly it also then becomes sort of a time where the first political space then becomes open to African-American people in the South in order to start organizing themselves for, you know, what would later become Come reconstruction. So certainly, it's a it was a a notable factor, I think, in terms of the realities of reconstruction to be able to have black troops playing any role at all in the administration of law and order in a post Confederate world. Now, you know, very quickly, a lot of this was kind of rolled back as the military districts were dismantled and under President Johnson's very 
easy terms for the South to come back in 1867, um, which opened up the rise of the Ku Klux Klan and a reign of terror. And that ultimately is what leads to, you know, in a lot of ways to Grant's election in 1868 and the establishment of presidential reconstruction, which then brings back black power in the South in a very different way, certainly not through the 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 element of the United States colored troops, but you know, sort of this picture, this time of military reconstruction certainly plays a big role uh, in the early days of uh, the post-war period in establishing the fact that there is, you know, was going to be a, you know, very, very significant change in the way the the South was going to be, was going to be organized. That's right. And, you know, really appreciate you giving us so much kind of in-depth look at, at all of this history, you know, history that's kind of been erased, but also just, I mean, th- the fact that there's 12 U.S. Army bases that are named after Confederate generals still, you know, kind of in oh. spite of this history is a little bit wild, including like the biggest army bases, Fort Benning, Fort Bragg, Fort Hood. You know, there's a these are all, you know, pretty bad Confederate generals, um, you know, and there's, of course, the erasure, you know, like everyone knows Memorial Day, but uh, maybe you could say something about this. But Memorial Day was originally Decoration Day, a holiday honoring the service of black soldiers in the Civil War. Um, and yet that uh, was taken away too. I mean, I guess that uh, this is really has nothing to do with this, but I just <laughs> saw this story yesterday that in 2018 in South Carolina, you know, this is when, uh, of course, Confederate monuments are being challenged. Republicans in South Carolina wanted to erect a Confederate monument to the black soldiers that fought for the Confederacy, of which there were none. Of course, that is rooted in the rise of what is called the Lost Cause Movement, which is an attempt to rewrite the history of the Civil War to say it wasn't really about slavery, but a war for so-called states' rights, that the cause of the Confederacy was actually noble and just and glorious. And actually, it's not until the civil rights era of the 1950s and 60s that all these Confederate war monuments are erected in the U.S., clearly a reaction to the Black Freedom Movement rolling back Jim Crow apartheid by the racist lost cause movement. So this attempt in 2018 for yet another Confederate monument shows how alive this pseudo history is today. So any closing thoughts on where we are now as a country and how it ties to the importance of the history we discussed today? Yeah, no, well, I appreciate that. And the Memorial Day piece is, is big. Um, started in South Carolina, in Charleston, in fact, where uh, a race course that had been turned into a prison for Union troops became known as the Martyrs Race Course. And starting in, um, I believe it was 1865 was the first one that they did on May 1st, actually. Uh, they demonstrated a number of thousands of people in Charleston, black people in Charleston, uh, singing John Brown's body and, you know, laying wreaths and crosses. And uh, there's contingents of Union infantry. There were some, you know, anti-slavery white citizens who were there as well. And they gathered uh, in a cemetery they had built for some of the people who had died there, some of these these prisoners. Um, and, you know, the whole point being to remember the battle. So, you know, that was something that, of course, later would would be wiped away and sort of washed away after Reconstruction when sort of any holiday or anything rep- recognizing black people was was absolutely going to be, you know, pushed aside. So, you know, it's a, it's a significant factor and I think it speaks to so many things. Yeah, what an unbelievable, you know, turn of events for the Republicans, uh, the party <laughs> founded for this reason to, to be the ones, um, you know, promoting something so malign, but I guess perhaps not that surprising given that they really represent what the Democrats represented then, although, you know, it's a complicated piece, but in terms of like the politics of of the sort of 
post-war Jim Crow democracy, which of course, because of the civil rights movement, Republicans and their Southern strategy co-opted them. Um, and I think that that is an important element of understanding where we are today, right? Is that the Republican party, as it's currently constituted in, again, the Southern strategy, which was you know functionally developed under the Nixon administration to take advantage of the shifts in the country that were happening vis-a-vis um, the civil rights movement, where because in the North, where the Democrats were often more dominant in the major cities because they were the party mainly of the industrial working class as uh, you know there's more integration in the north and the growth of the black populations and the political strength um the role they're playing in unions and other things it really starts to shift the politics within the democratic party which creates an opening in the south and the republicans are able to exploit it by integrating the dixiecrats who are really the direct lineage of the jim crow racist who destroyed reconstruction and also destroyed populism, by the way, because they could not have a black and white anti-monopoly movement emerge, and who, on the basis of the destruction of reconstruction and populism, then built up this new lost cause mythology in favor of the Confederacy. And the lost cause mythology was rooted in the need and the attempt to reassert the power of white supremacy over black people in the South as strict segregation and semi-slavery really in the context of sharecropping um, and convict leasing labor was brought back as an institution of social control. So when you put it like this, what happens in the country is after the Civil War, the big monopolies that come out of the Civil War and the big financiers that come out of the Civil War, it's really changed and, and hyper-accelerated the capitalist economy into this monopoly capitalist world. Ultimately, for a lot of reasons, they don't want to move forward with Reconstruction. And Reconstruction becomes a stumbling block to the establishment of the rule of monopoly capital. Because Reconstruction, which you know had a lot of contradictions politically, but ultimately was a political system that was based on a certain amount of social provision and a certain amount of progressive taxation against the richest people, protection of workers, regulation of industry, and so on and so forth, that was not exactly cotton, if you will, to the rise of the new capital barons who wanted to massively exploit workers in every possible way. They wanted to have no barriers at all um, to the amassing of wealth and the ability to trample on the rights of working class people. So to have a huge section of the country, which because of the undemocratic nature of the country, having like the black the block vote of the South be heavily controlled and influenced by black politicians who are responsible to a highly proletarian um, social base. And this becomes the context, and many black soldiers become politicians during Reconstruction. The attack on Reconstruction was uh, that it was communistic and that it represented a movement of poor, untutored black former slaves who were pushing politics um, that were communistic and against rich people and you know pushing these dangerous policies and there's a longer story to it but the linking of the reconstruction to the Paris Commune the linking of of all radicalism in America to reconstruction and sort of a red scare type atmosphere that was also of course shot through with extreme racism um not that different from today huh uh was <laughs> you know ultimately the 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 ideological kindling that was used to attack reconstruction uh, by a movement of very wealthy people. And it became more advantageous for the ruling class in the North to bring back both elements of the old ruling class and also the new ruling class that had emerged in the context of the railroad around you know, the internal commerce. And basically, 
they cut a deal because Wall Street and you know the city of London only wanted to invest in cotton production. They didn't want to get involved in any newfangled schemes to industrialize or provide jobs to people in the context of all this political unrest and everything else, the destruction of the war. They wanted to go to what they knew. For that to happen, the black population had to be locked back into a system where they were basically frozen on the land and 100% subordinate to large plantation owners. So that was the use of debt in the sharecropping system on the former hand and the use of the convict labor leasing uh, on the other hand in order to create a, even though there weren't that many people in convict leasing, it was used as an institution of labor control because since people were just kind of randomly rounded up for vagrancy and stuff like that, you wouldn't want to travel even county to county. So it sort of forced people to stay in their position to a large degree on plantations in a disadvantageous semi-slave-like condition as sharecroppers in high amounts of debt peonage. And to make that kind of system work, they had to also create a space where the white farmers, small white farmers in the north who had been sunk into deep debt peonage themselves because they were unable to sell their goods on a now glutted world market that they were accessing through the railroads. And they themselves were also caught up in the crop lien system. You had to get them on your side, keep them away from the blacks. And so you had to really resurrect at full tilt the system of white supremacy that had brought in you know, many whites as supporters of the slave system in the first place. And so you know, that is basically what happens. There's a populist movement where briefly blacks and whites, you know, in the similar condition as debt slaves in the, uh, what one historian called one big pawn shop, the South of the post-war era. But that's crushed and drowned in broad blood, just brutally, brutally crushed. And so ultimately at the turn of the century where the handshake agreement between, you know, the ultra rich of the North and the ultra rich of the South to reunite to subordinate black people, to create an instrument of social control, to create a semi-colonial economy in the South that would provide low wages, certain raw materials, and a institute for profitable investment for financiers, and obviously the you know rise of Jim Crow racism at that time and the resurrection of the lost cause. So it brings us to today because when the lost cause forces are you know defeated in the the legal sort of struggle around Jim Crow. They're still politically quite powerful in the South, and they switch as a block from Democrats to Republicans. And now the South plays the same role now as it played then and as it played for many years, which is that the solid South, the rule of you know the most conservative sections of the Southern ruling class on the basis primarily of a labor system based on the exploitation of black labor you know, has becomes an anchor for the most reactionary policies in the country in and of itself. It's a black vote against labor rights. It's a black vote against the minimum wage. It's a black vote against voting rights for black people. It's a black vote against heat legislation to help farm workers. It's the black vote for all the most reactionary policies. And it's the center and the core of the most reactionary political movements in America. I mean, that's indisputable. And I think that it's directly tied to the political lineage of these people and an ideology that is explicitly designed to do that, to strike a deal with the richest, most powerful capitalists in the country who were not primarily in the South at that time to reestablish their system of Jim Crow for the benefit of capitalists and certainly for the benefit of their own, you know, sort of Southern capitalist ruling class establishment. And the handshake agreement being that black people 
people would be, you know, turned once again into second class citizens and treated in a subhuman reality. And I think even though formal segregation is over, the politics of mass incarceration and other things show that, you know, these areas continue to play that same basic social function, even though it's a lot more complicated and there are a lot more really conservative areas that also play a role. But the role of the South in many ways, I think, is directly linked to the defeat of Reconstruction, the defeat of the populist movement, which is the defeat of the promise of the Civil War that was brought forward by black troops to bring some level of equality into this country, and the fact that the the discrimination against black people in the United States now is really a precondition, national oppression of black people, a precondition for the rise of monopoly capital uh, in this country. And the rise of Jim Crow was not coincidentally related to the rise of monopoly capital is in fact directly related. So I'm rambling a little bit now, but uh, there are many ways where the, the past is prologue for us here. But that's, I think, why the lost cause confederacy element has such a huge myth, because the political legacy it's built in is still very much with us today. And that is monopoly capitalism in the United States. One of its roots is, is, is foundational roots is Jim Crow. Thank you for that, Eugene. Again, thank you for the book recommendation coming on to talk about it. No, of course. Really happy to come on. Really happy to talk about it. Thank you so much um, for doing it, quite frankly. Hopefully people did learn something and, you know, we'll be able to take this history to other people moving forward. Glory, glory, Oh.